One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. <laughs> AutoTrader. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany, and Sam, and we have a special note from Clint. And then we also have Tom Wheeler, who is a former chairman of the FCC, who was actually the chairman of the FCC when net neutrality rules were first put in place. Net neutrality is one of the really crummy names <laughs> ever assigned to something because it's not really explicit. What we what we tried to do was to change the name to say that it's the open Internet. We also have a conversation with Sinead Burke, who's a disability activist. Across the entire little people and community of dwarfism, the terminology that is most detested is the word midget. We consider it a slur. And before we get in, I'll just talk about a refrain that I've heard a lot this year, definitely heard it a lot before the election, is I heard people say, like, you know what, they just don't really care about politics, or they're just not into politics, or politics isn't really their thing. And when I think about what power is, power is the ability to influence the decision-making process, and politics is the decision-making process. Your life is already political. There are decisions that are happening every day around you, about you, that implicate you, that impact you. Like you're already a part of the process in some way or another. Now, you might not understand that you have agency. You might not understand how you can influence the process and what your power looks like, but you're already a part of it. And let's be clear that the people who are making sure that your taxes are high, who are not investing in public schools, who are allowing the police to just kill people, who don't care if you have health care or not, they all understand politics, that they are all deeply invested. They care. They get it. And they're banking on the fact that you think that you don't have power. But the reality is that when we say speak truth to power, we're talking about reminding each other that the system is ours, that there are people who hold positions and they have formal roles, but they derive any of their legitimacy from our power, from the power of the people. So you should continue to speak truth to power. And that means working in your community or wherever you are to make sure that it is always clear that the people have the power. Let's go. And here's a special note from Clint. What's going on, y'all? I wasn't able to make the news this week, but I wanted to share something else. If you listen often to the pod, you know that I talk a lot about who it is that we often deem worthy of extending our empathy to and who we don't. Often those ideas are tied to race, class, sex, nationality, and religion. And there was a big story in the New York Times a couple weeks ago called The Uncounted. And it was talking about all the civilians who have been killed over the past few years in Iraq who aren't included in the number that our government provides us. The story was really devastating, and you should absolutely read it. But it reflects something I've been thinking about a lot lately. And when I'm wrestling with things like this, poems are often the way that I try to make sense of these questions, even if I don't find an answer at the end of it. So I wanted to share a new piece I've written with you all that's attempting to think through some of this. The New York Times reports that 200 Iraqi civilians have just been killed by U.S. military airstrikes after Hanif Abdurraqib. And the man on television calls it unfortunate yet inevitable collateral damage. And I wonder what it is that turns mourning into a metonym or a proclamation of conjecture. And I read his bio and I see that he has a wife and I can't imagine he would call it inevitable if her body were pulled from the quiet implosion of scattered rubble. And I see that he has a son 
and I can't imagine he would call the boy who bears his name collateral in someone else's war. And I see that he has a daughter, and I think of what it might mean for someone to render her final breath in inevitability of global politics. And I understand what he means. I know he means that war is callous and unforgiving, that a militant can surround himself with a dozen women and children so that the pilot must decide between a target and the soft ache of his own heart's detonation. I do not misunderstand the cruelty of war, but I regret the way we talk about its casualties, how their lives become tacit admonitions, how the tyranny of a border made out of thin air means bombs are only dropped on one side of it. But I too have felt the empathy corrode inside the most cavernous parts of me, have taken the quarters from my pocket and used them to cover my collusion. Who among us has not used spare change to ornament our contrition? laid a garland of rations atop bodies of names we do not know. And I'm not sure what it means for us, not to be the ones to fire the bullet, but to behave as if the bullet always belonged in that chest and not our own. And here's the news with me, Sam, and Brittany. Sam is our favorite data scientist, and Brittany was a former member of the Ferguson Commission and appointed by Obama to the Task Force in 21st Century Policing and is now a leader in education reform. There's no Clint this week on the news, but he'll be back next week. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Packetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. You know, so uh, last week on Friday, we met with... Ajit, the chairman of the FCC, it was me, uh, Brittany, and Sam went to the meeting. We had a, a good conversation both with uh, the chairman and uh, some uh, some people on his staff. Um, and on this pod, you will hear a conversation with the former chairman of the FCC, Tom Wheeler, which will be coming up after the news. But we wanted to just recap uh, what we what our takeaways were from the meeting. Yeah, you know, I found the the conversations, the multiple conversations that we had in this space. Um, Fascinating. I still walk away um, demanding and pushing that the FCC take more seriously the long-term ramifications of reversing these rules on net neutrality. Um, In their opinion, uh, these rules were unnecessary, that the net was fairly neutral um, before uh, two years ago when these rules were put into place, and therefore we don't need to be overly restrictive as a person of color, as a personalized, as a person who comes from and works with marginalized communities. We know that uh, we often have to rely on and look to the federal government to protect those things that other people assume will be neutral, but that are never neutral for us. Uh, and so I can tell you, as somebody who works in education, that the net has never been neutral. Things have never always been fully accessible um, in terms of speed, especially especially um, by uh, students growing up in low-income communities. And my fear is that this is going to make it much worse. Uh, and I think it's really important to recognize that this is a necessary role for the FCC to play. You know, there are obviously lots of ways to govern something. You can do it through regulation. You can do it through legislation. I think it's going to be really important here, though, the, that the FCC does not punt this responsibility to the Federal Trade Commission, to Congress, and expect them to act as soon as um, this kind of doomsday scenario comes into play. Uh, It's going to be really important for them to absolutely play their part, especially as the experts in this area. I was hoping to hear more from them uh, about some of the research and data that brought them to this point of deciding uh, potentially to repeal this regulation. Um, And in part, that's because, 
you know, in looking into this issue, the main complaint that we've heard from people about the net neutrality rules that the Obama administration put in place uh, was this argument that they would somehow stifle investment in broadband, investment uh, in the infrastructure uh, of the internet because of the sort of regulatory red tape. Uh, And, you know, that's a bold claim to make and it needs to be backed up with evidence. And in looking into the evidence, you know, it's really mixed evidence. There are studies that show that it reduces investment. There are studies that show that investment has increased even after this regulation was adopted. Uh, And so the best thing we could say is that, you know, the jury's still out on whether or not this even has an impact on investment. And yet, you know, what I heard in that meeting was sort of accepting as a fact that this actually hurts investment and that that was enough rationale to make policy. And, you know, I hope that uh, in making policy that we can be as deliberative as possible and consider the full range of evidence and allow time to actually pass. So even two, two years since that regulation was adopted to actually see whether this has the impact uh, that sort of the naysayers are saying that it does. And, you know, one of the other things that we talked about in that conversation was about Internet access to in low income communities and in, in remote places. So Comcast has a, a plan called Internet Essentials. Uh, Charter, I think, has a plan that's similar. And I think AT&T also has a plan that's essentially like a, a very low cost plan that gives a gives access to the Internet to people. And we talked about the challenges uh, of what it means that there are people who just like can't afford. So like net neutrality aside, which is the majority of our conversation, there were other issues about like wireless access and just access to the internet uh, and like what does it mean? Are there ways to incentivize incentivize the providers to to offer a plan that is a lower cost so that more people can get on the internet, especially in this age uh, where the internet is such an important part of the news ecosystem and the information landscape. So that was interesting. You know, I met with Comcast not too long ago to talk specifically about this and, and their plan, like that makes sense to me, but they are just one of many providers that could offer this. And we also talked about the places where there is the least amount of coverage. So on reservations uh, in some places in Alaska and try in some, in some rural areas in the country. And how do we make sure that across the country, people have an equal opportunity to get on the internet. And part of that is obviously this conversation on net neutrality. And part of it is about the providers. And I think the last thing is, you know, building on this comment uh, about punning to, to Congress that you made, Brittany, you know, it is, I am increasingly uh, aware of and conscious of the ways in which people use Congress as a sort of way to essentially do something that will be might be very harmful for people of color uh, and sort of say that it's not their fault because it should have been Congress's responsibility to fix it. I, we've heard this sort of rhetoric with DACA uh, around, you know, it's con- Congress should pass a law uh, protecting the program. So we're just going to repeal it for now to push Congress to do that. And now we're hearing it with net neutrality. Uh, and ultimately, like we know Congress doesn't act, you know, that's well known. And so knowing that and still repealing something uh, is, you know, I think, negligent at best. So I want to look to the Caribbean uh, this week um, as the conversation about hurricanes and storms, both domestically and internationally, has started to wane. It's really important to recognize that this conversation is far from over all across the Caribbean um, and across several places in our country. Um, but with the Caribbean specifically, this conversation about how to rebuild, with whom to rebuild and with what to rebuild um, is of critical importance. And it's just in the beginning stages. So Salon did a piece this week on all of the proposals that have been put forth to 
to actually rebuild the Caribbean. And the important thing to recognize is that all of these are proposals to rebuild using more sustainable forms of energy, um, such that rebuilding will be less difficult in the future as climate change will most assuredly make storms more frequent and even stronger. This conversation has been had from folks like Elon Musk over at Tesla. Um, they have committed to sending uh, hundreds of Powerwall battery systems to several Caribbean islands that you can pair with solar panels to get the electric grid back up and running again. Um, British uh, businessman Sir Richard Branson has also talked about um, supporting a, a shift to clean energy in the Caribbean. Um, there's also uh, the prospect of China actually expanding um, their economic influence in the world and essentially financing and funding the recovery efforts in the Caribbean. Um, what's really important to note is that uh, the majority of the Caribbean nations hit, as well as these nations that are talking about rebuilding, um, all signed the Paris Agreement, which requires wealthier industrialized nations to commit more money than other nations to actually build more sustainable places to live. Um, but Europe has shown little willingness in this. And so it's either a conversation of benevolence coming from wealthier folks across the water or um, or financing from nations like China. Um, obviously, what this brings to mind is a colonialism and a kind of neocolonialism that this could lead to um, with all of these folks filtering money into these places and then trying to determine the future of what should be a self-determined set, a group of people. Um, and so I wanted to bring this up because the conversation on the hurricanes obviously has waned for many of us and we've moved on to other things, but this conversation is not at all over for the people who are still suffering. Brittany, I think you nailed it on the head. This is one of those stories that that just isn't making headlines, but it will have a big impact on a lot of people's lives. It does make me think too of, of the people that profit from tragedy of any sort and that there's an economy that also is created from tragedy all across the country, often at the expense of the most marginalized people and people of color. I'd be interested to step back and think about like what solutions are for this that don't exploit communities, that don't uh, make countries that are already struggling dependent on foreign money to sustain themselves like what that looks like and I don't know so that'll be my homework going forward is like to think about this but you until you brought this here I hadn't I hadn't understood it in this way but you're right it does make me think about colonialism and what happens when tragedy strikes and and then uh, you have to reach out to people who essentially will own so much of the property in a country. And that really is the question, right? What is the solution, especially when you are looking at a number of nations that just are not wealthy enough to rebuild in the ways that are necessary and that have often a lot of wealth and natural resources, but foreign governments and foreign entities and corporations already have their hands and are si hands in that and are siphoning off most of the profits from those natural resources. So um, if there is to be a self-determined strategy, where are those resources going to come from? And how can people of color across the diaspora actually and aid and assist in that. Yeah, and I think for me, this is just a reminder that the tragedy itself is only the first part of, you know, what could be a much broader tragedy. And that is uh, not only, you know, the loss of life and the incredible damage from the hurricane, but then you have the aftermath of the hurricane. You have the struggle to get resources, basic resources to rebuild. And then you have to worry about where those resources come from, uh, what types of loans or other commitments are made uh, and what types of people are actually now going to come into control of uh, so much of, you know, your 
your island, you know, your your community. And so, you know, this is something that requires sustained attention. Okay, so uh, my piece of news is a new study that's come out uh, looking at uh, drug overdose rates by race. And so we've heard a lot about the opioid epidemic, uh, and in particular how the opioid epidemic has increased rates of overdose and, and drug abuse uh, in you know r- rural and suburban white communities. Uh, but one of the things that's interesting that this study finds is that uh, cocaine death rates for black people are actually on par with opioid death rates for whites. Uh, and so while we, while so much attention has been focused on the opioid epidemic, um, what this study finds is that cocaine death rates have been rising, uh, particularly in black communities, and that for black men, the rate of cocaine deaths uh, in recent years has actually been uh, almost as high as the rate of opioid deaths for white men. And for black women, it's been higher uh, than for uh, opioid deaths for white women. Uh, and so, you know, this is fascinating because we've seen, you know, so much attention and even some resources being uh, made available uh, to address the opioid epidemic, but we have not seen uh, a focus on uh, what that could mean uh, in terms of uh, addressing the cocaine uh, death rates, as well as other drug deaths in black communities and how uh, the approach to that, you know, we've talked about how the approach to uh, drug abuse in black communities is often a very punitive and criminalization approach versus a more rehabilitative approach that's now being used in some places for uh, opioid deaths in white communities. And so as these numbers continue to climb, you know, the question is like, one, how do we even bring attention, you know, so that people can understand that this is something that's happening uh, in black communities to the same extent that needs to be addressed. And two, make sure that that response uh, is not the traditional response Uh, of more policing and incarceration, but rather a response that actually seeks uh, to address the underlying conditions uh, that bring about about drug abuse uh, and that can actually treat them as a public health crisis that they are. This is incredibly tragic and a reminder of a conversation that we've had on the pod before about just how differently the opioid crisis has been treated when the face of the disease, when the face of suffering was white, when it was much much more suburban, when it was a face that you could find in the middle of America, as opposed to um, the ways in which heroin, um, crack cocaine, and other drugs really ravaged black and brown communities that were much more urban, um, because those were the faces that were not palatable to white America, because those were the faces that were not palatable in a political conversation that made treating, rightfully treating the opioid crisis like a public uh, health concern, a politically expedient thing to do. And so here we are yet again, where we're seeing a, a real tragedy of substance abuse across multiple communities, but the ways in which that tragedy uh, and that disease is being treated uh, is vastly different. And so, as you said, Sam, I'm hoping that this will again be treated as a public health concern. Although um, I know that if evidence shows us anything over history um, that I'll be holding my breath for a long time before that happens. Um, But, you know, I'm hopeful that this is a lesson that at the very least community-based support and substance abuse recovery spaces uh, will pay attention to and take seriously uh, and making sure that they, whether or not the government is willing to pay the right amount of attention, that they um, will pay attention and um, provide help and support accordingly. You know, what we'd heard over the past couple of years, the way people talked about the opioid crisis was sort of like there's just a spike in addiction, that the addiction right now is not only that people 
that, that it's white people being impacted, but that the sheer number is just so great. And this for, this study is one of the first studies that just dispels that myth that it really is truly just about race and class at this point that highlights what the difference is. And it makes me think about this question of like, what is the worth of people's lives? And from a policy standpoint, from like an interpersonal standpoint, and you see that like with things like crack, the narrative is sort of like those people made a bad decision and they should suffer. Like that's sort of the way people talk about crack. But with opioids, it's sort of like, well, uh, who knew that drugs are addictive and people can't like, you know, that this addiction is a disease. But because like the, the color of the bodies is different, like the way we think about worth and value or the way that the public conversation about worth and value has been, has also been, has also been so, so often. I think about being in a city like Baltimore where, you know, at one point we were the heroin capital of, of the country, a lot of crack cocaine here for so long. So many people's families are impacted by addiction, including mine. And, and like, what would the 90s have looked like? What would the early 2000s have looked like? What would today look like if this city's response was to treat it like addiction uh, and to treat it like it is a, a public health issue and not like it's a crime. So uh, the implications of this are far reaching. I hope that people see the study so they can dispel this myth that the numbers weren't the same. So my news is uh, there's an incredible uh, article that came out that NPR published uh, that is about the racial disparities with regard to maternal health. And one of the things, uh, the top line is that according to the CDC, black mothers in the U.S. die at three to four times the rate of white mothers, one of the widest of all racial disparities in women's health. And the article puts it another way, so I'll just read it straight from here. It says, a black woman is 22% more likely to die from heart disease than a white woman, 71% more likely to perish from cervical cancer, but 243% more likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth-related causes. And, and, you know, we talk about disparities often on the pod, but this one was just so just so shocking and you should read it because it's a the story is is an incredible story so I won't give that away I'll just talk about the content but you know when you try and think about like why are the disparities so deep one of the reasons is scientific racism so there was this notion for so long that like black people just had were more susceptible to illness than other people so like because of black bodies and because of blackness itself, like more prone to illness, which we know is not necessarily true in that sense. And that is scientific racism that has been dispelled, but also essentially because like doctors don't believe that black women are in pain. So the treatment is different. And that has been studied uh, that the quality in hospitals where black women give birth are often the qualities lower because of historical segregation. Um, and, one of those consequences is that they normally have higher uh, life-threatening complications because of the quality. So what's interesting is that the outcomes and the impact here are sort of constant regardless of class. So the story is actually about a, a woman who has multiple degrees, works on this issue as a part of her work, and she still uh, died after giving birth. So I just wanted to bring this here. You know, we talk about disparities because uh, you know, if we don't talk about it, I don't know who, who will, like we as, as people impacted. But this is also news that isn't necessarily making the nightly news, but we should talk about so we can think collectively about solutions. You know, I remember doing this exercise called the Privilege Walk a couple of years ago. Um, you know, you're asked a series of questions and you step forward if you enjoy the privilege, you step back if you don't. And I've done this exercise 
at least a dozen times in my life in a number of different settings. But this last time that I did it, it occurred to me that the more positional power and visibility I've gained in my life, the further and further back I was. And that is not at all to suggest that my privileges are not very, very real. Gender, sexual orientation, economics, education, I do enjoy all of those privileges. But it is to say that stories like this remind me of a sad and disgusting truth that there is no adjusting for risk when you are a Black woman. So my greatest risk factor is still being a Black woman, even when I've attained a level of education, even when I have strong social status, even when I make a a decent and fair and living wage. And that fact in and of itself is a real cognitive stress, right, that adds on to the stress that we're already talking about. How do I reconcile my greatest risk also being the thing in which I take my the most pride, because I come from a strong line of incredible Black women um, and and have and continue to look to Black women as a real source of strength and wisdom. So, you know, it's hard to provide news analysis on this because as I shared with you all before we started recording, you know, every time I've listened to this story, I've cried because it just feels like it can be so damning um, and that your future is laid out in front of you when you are a Black woman, irrespective of how hard you work, uh, of what you attain. Um, It is also just a reminder, especially to any women of color listening, um, to really, really take care of yourself. Politics is always, always personal. And so the way that ways in which we are treated in these systems have a personal effect on us um, and real ramifications for everything from our ability to bear children, to be there for our families in the long term, as the story reminds us. Um, I've talked a lot and very openly about therapy and about how much of a difference it has made in my life. But I intentionally found a therapist who understood that racial stress is real, that it is constant for me, um, whether or not I am white collar or blue collar, um, that it's something that I have to be able to talk about and work through and take care of in addition to all of the things that I do to take care of my body, my spirit, my mind. Um, So I'm really thankful that you brought this up. I'm I'm hopeful um, that people will be looking out for the women of color in their lives and the black women in their lives and recognize that this, um, that racial stress is absolutely real, um, that the kind of weathering that happens to black women um, is not a figment of our imagination. And even if you can't see it on the outside, um, it's happening on the inside. And to me, this is, you know, I'm interpreting this as a part of a broader sort of context of uh, studies that have come out that have shown that, you know, racial disparities continue to be so determinative and so powerful, even uh, when controlling for, you know, income and education level, Uh, you know, and it is really across the board when you look at things like the amount of income that you're making with a uh, as a black person even if you have a you know a graduate degree or you know a college degree compared to a white person with a high school degree uh, it you see this when you're looking at the wealth gap the total amount of resources uh, the difference in resources between black and white families where a white family with a high school degree has $78,000 in resources uh, and a black family with a graduate degree has only 84000 right? So 78 and 84, it's pretty much the same amount um, despite vastly different level of educational attainment. Uh, and then, you know, you see this in uh, infant mortality. You see this in so many different domains. Uh, and this is exactly why a approach that is solely focused on 
uh, class or income level uh, will not necessarily deal with the full scope and range of uh, disparities and uh, issues that are impacting black people in particular, uh, and that we need to have a very targeted and specific approach uh, to support black mothers, to support black families, uh, to uh, address these racial barriers that continue to persist. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. And now my conversation with Tom Wheeler, former chairman of the FCC. So Tom, thanks so much for uh, for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Great to be here, DeRay. Now, net neutrality has been a big topic in the news, definitely online in the past sort of month or so. So I wanted to talk to you about it. You know, we just met with Ajit, the current chair of the FCC, and, and Mignon, another FCC commissioner, has been on the pod before. But you were the chair of the FCC who pushed, um, who who was there when net neutrality got got put through. I'd love to know, like, how would you describe net neutrality to people? And then before that, how did you end up at the FCC of all places? <laughs> well. Uh, you know, your first question, net neutrality is one of the really crummy names <laughs> ever assigned to something because it's not really explicit. What we what we tried to do was to change the name to say that it's the open Internet. And it's all about whether the Internet will be open, whether it is for the consumer trying to reach one of the services or one of the services trying to reach the consumer. But the name net neutrality has uh, has been frozen in place uh, but I prefer to think of it as, as the open internet because that's really what we're talking about. Will the internet 
be open or will it end up being like your cable system where the person who runs or the company that runs the your access to the internet decides where you can go and how much you got to pay for different levels of service and all this sort of thing. Got it. And how, how'd you end up at the FCC? So, I mean, I've spent my, uh, my professional life, uh, in, in technology. Um, I was, uh, president of the cable television association back in the seventies and early eighties when cable television was, Nothing like what it is today. And uh, we were fighting as the broadcasters and Hollywood tried to shut us down because they didn't like competition. And then I went out um, and started several companies in in, uh, new technology. Um, Ended up uh, part of a group that won a wireless license when the FCC was giving cellular licenses away by lottery, if you can believe that. I was lucky enough to win. And, and then I ended up uh, running the Cellular Industry Association as they were uh, also climbing up uh, the hill. Uh, I, I remember having the celebration of the 10 millionth cellular subscriber. And you think about that today when we have hundreds of millions of cellular subscribers. Um, and uh, and then I uh, then I left there and and became a partner in a venture capital firm investing uh, in uh, in new technologies uh, and uh, and then the president asked me if I would go chair the FCC which is uh, you know kind of fits with the things I had been doing previously. What does the chair of the FCC do? Just you know, there are a lot of people who who've never thought about the FCC and certainly haven't thought about the chair's role. How would you help us understand what the chair does? Well, it's a really great job um, because it's uh, the, the the FCC is is what they call a strong chair uh, agency because um, the the chairperson is the uh, is CEO of the agency. Um, everybody reports uh, to him or to her, um, and um, and that means that you set the agenda, you pick the topics, you. Uh, propose uh, wh- how those topics will be uh, addressed <clears throat> and work with your fellow commissioners to uh, to get to a point where hopefully you got three votes on uh, on one of the proposals and move ahead but it's a it's a wonderful job and it's you know we we regulated about one sixth of the American economy which is no trivial thing in itself but the fascinating part about it is that the other five sixths relies on that one-sixth. So it was a crucial, uh, and, and still is, the, the, the networks that connect us um, are the networks that define us, and the agency responsible for those networks um, uh, needs to take that responsibility seriously. And now when I think about, when, when I think about net neutrality, it seems to be, and push me if I'm saying this incorrectly, but right now with the rules, it's like... The, a provider like AOL, you know, back in the day, they wouldn't be able to charge you more for like accessing YouTube than than accessing other sites or wouldn't be able to like block certain sites as a part of your internet package. Was that the thrust behind why you thought net neutrality mattered? Like why did this, where did this come from considering the net neutrality rules hadn't existed before you all put them in place? Like why was this, why did you think this was necessary? Well, it's interesting that you mention AOL. Uh, AOL really doesn't apply uh, currently, but it is 
the root of uh, of our thought process that that you know when the internet started, it started on dial-up telephone lines. Remember those screeching modems that you would hook up to your con- your computer and and then tie into your telephone line, and that would take you out to the internet. Yeah, that was what the internet was, and and companies like uh, AOL or universities, which were the first implementation, um, or Prodigy or any of the others at that time, had to be allowed onto that telephone network because the telephone network was a common carrier. And a common carrier is a regulatory concept that dates back to medieval England that says that you've got to provide first come, first serve, non-discriminatory access. You can't pick and choose who gets on. And, um, and, and so what happened was that the telephone companies started getting upset at this. They saw people who were building businesses and making money off of them, and they weren't sharing in it. And the classic line was uh, – Oh, somewhere around 2005 or so, I think, when Ed Whitaker, who was then the chairman of uh, SBC, which soon became AT&T, um, said, uh, people must think I'm nuts if I'm going to give them free access to my lines. Um, but that's how the Internet started. And that's how it was, you know, through the uh, – through the early 2000s, even when you got into DSL, when the phone companies and others started offering faster service, those were still, um, uh, those were still uh, common carrier services. But the, the, the phone companies and the cable companies then started a lobbying effort to redefine things and to say, well, you know, now we've moved from the old analog telephone system to a new digital network. And, and that means that uh, we should have a new regulatory environment and the old rules shouldn't apply to us. Well, the answer to that is wrong. <laughs> that's, not, that's not right. That's like saying that, um, let's see, I, um, I have just bought an electric car uh, but I shouldn't have to obey the traffic laws because they were designed for internal combustion engines. The fact of the matter is that networks run by telephone companies and cable operators are delivering essential services and should not be in a position where they are gatekeepers determining who reaches consumers and who consumers can reach. They ought to be open. But what, uh, what what people on the other side would say is that this wasn't an issue before you all made an issue by putting in the net neutrality rules, that there wasn't widespread, uh, that there weren't widespread providers like restricting access uh, before you, you all made the rule. So if the rule disappears, then like there's no evidence that this will become a problem or was a problem before. What do you say to that? They're smoking something. That's not true. Um, that, um, that, I mean, first of all, let's go back that, that this is something, this is an issue that's been around and been dealt with by both Republican and Democratic FCCs. It's been a bipartisan issue because there have been troubles that have existed. So let's go, just kind of go down the list. So, so Comcast says that it's going to slow down 
BitTorrent's ability to deliver licensed, uh, copyrighted, uh, uh, purchased content um, um, because it competed with Comcast's pay TV business. And the Republican FCC said, no, you can't do that. And passed a rule saying you couldn't do that. And Comcast took the FCC to court and the court said, no, you haven't done it right. You need to, uh, to, uh, to say that it's a, it's a common carrier if you're going to have that kind of rule. And so we've been through a series of both Republican and Democratic FCCs that have been trying to deal with this. But let me just go down some other examples that, that um, you know, uh, AT&T and Verizon blocked Google Wallet uh, from cell phones because they had their own competitive product. Um, Verizon said that uh, they wouldn't allow um, uh, tethering apps on their phones because they had their own tethering app they charged an extra 20 bucks a month for. But probably the classic example that really puts the lie to these claims that, oh, there, there wasn't a problem. It was regulation in search of a problem was what the Verizon lawyer said when Verizon sued to, 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 to break up the 2010 open internet rules, which was another attempt uh, before my time to, to try and deal with it. And, and the Verizon lawyer stood in the well of the court in front of the three judges in their robes and said, I have been instructed by my client that I may say that one of the reasons that we are opposing this rule is that we intend to prioritize traffic. We intend to pick and choose and provide different levels of service, so-called fast lanes and slow lanes. And so there they stand in court admitting this is what they want to do. And so it's pretty hard for anybody to make the case that there weren't issues here. Now, what about when people, so if people acknowledge that there were issues before, what they would then say is that the FTC has the power to punish anybody who breaks the rules and, and that when that, if, if net neutrality is removed, then the FTC will still have its power. Is that not true? Oh, it's not. The, the FTC uh, is a fine agency, um, but there's a couple of key things that you need to know about them. One, they don't have any rulemaking authority. They're an adjudicatory body. They, uh, they're like law enforcement. They catch people doing things and, um, and then adjudicate them, fine them or, or whatever the case may be. Um, and secondly, they don't have any expertise in telecommunications that, in fact, by statute, have been over the years not allowed into things having to do with common carriers um, because that was the exclusive turf of the expert agency, the FCC. One of the fascinating things in this, DeRay, when you look at, the, at this, there is now currently a case pending before the full Ninth Circuit. Um, it had been decided by a three-judge panel and has been appealed to the full Ninth Circuit in which, get ready for this, in which AT&T, 
as a defense against a unfair advertising claim by the FTC because they can deal with things like advertising, but not with how networks operate as a defense against a claim of unfair advertising. AT&T went to the ninth circuit court of appeals and said, the FTC has no jurisdiction over us. Now this is the same AT&T that has been arguing at the FCC that, oh, you ought to give the, all the responsibility to the FTC. The FTC doesn't have anywhere near the expertise or the authority that the FT, FCC does. Don't go anywhere. More Pontiac the People is coming. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Pot Save America is brought to you by Helix. If you're looking for better sleep, you need to upgrade your mattress with Helix. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released and high-end Helix Elite Collection, hmm. a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids, which Charlie has. Charlie has a Helix mattress now. Just for kids in his uh, race car bed. Very nice. excited. Very happy about it. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and uh, it ships straight to your door free of charge. They even offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. If you're a side sleeper, you can choose a model with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief. There are also models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. Plus, check out enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating while you sleep. It's no wonder Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. And you, you've loved your Helix mattress. I love it. I got a Don Lux. There you go. And there it's you go. great. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked. That's helixsleep.com slash crooked. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Now, the other thing that people say is that it's actually the the companies it's where it's actually the like Twitters and Facebooks and Google's that are, that are actually restricting content. And that's who needs to be regulated. It's not the internet service providers that like Facebook is censoring people and has an algorithm that's putting stuff before you. That's not transparent. And Twitter has non-transparent rules about who can be on the platform or not. And that those are actually the, that's really the place where people should be worried. It's not, it's not worried about fast lanes or slow lanes or about access to the internet with regard to the internet service providers. What would you say to those people who offer that, that line of uh, argument to, to say that the end of net neutrality won't be an issue, that the real fight should be about the Twitters, Facebooks, and Googles? Well, it's a non sequitur um, in, the, in the discussion about uh, network neutrality and, and the open internet because, first of all, the FCC has no jurisdiction over Google or Facebook or Twitter or whomever. And to to raise that in the middle of a debate over whether or not people should have open access to get to those services um, is just a, a, a misdirection play. The, there is a huge difference between a network that is, for the most part, for most of all, most Americans, um, a monopoly, 
You don't like what your internet service provider is doing? Tough. You haven't got any choice. So you've got a monopoly, and you've got a situation where that monopoly can be a gatekeeper determining what you can get to and what you have to pay for different levels of service. And the whole concept of the open internet is no. That's an essential service. It's an essential pathway. It should be open. Now you get to the First Amendment questions of people who use that. And they have First Amendment rights to make decisions just like a newspaper that uses the internet makes decisions. But this is this this whole argument, this is a this is a classic, you know, debating ploy. Raise an issue that really isn't relevant um, and see if you can beat on that for a while to distract from what the real issue is, which is is the most important network of the 21st century going to be open or closed? That makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about the lack of FCC power over the Twitters, Facebooks, and Googles. Now, there seem to be conflicting studies. What, what people on the other side would say is that uh, the net neutrality rules have have led to a decrease in investment in infrastructure in, in the tech, in the wireless or this space, the ISP space. Uh, there are other studies that seem to contest that. What would you say? Because we've heard this argument that like one of the reasons why net neutrality should end is that the increased regulation has actually decreased innovation and uh, infrastructure spending, which is actually bad for the economy overall. What's your take on that? Well, it's not true. Um, In the two and a half years since the open network, the open internet rule has been in place, um, network investment has gone up. Um, the revenues of those who are providing the network services have gone up. Um, their, um, profits have gone up and their stocks are at record highs, but let's get real specific here. You know, they're one of, one of the things I learned at, at the FCC is that there are lobbying economics And then there are the economics that are really going on that people tell Wall Street and the Securities and Exchange Commission where there are um, penalties for not telling the truth. Um, And um, none of the network providers who have been subject to open Internet for the last two and a half years, none of them have said in any of their presentations to Wall Street, oh, hey, this is going to have an impact on our business. None of them have said in the filings that they have to make with the SEC that identifies threats to the business that, oh, the open internet order is a threat to the business. And in fact, um, AT&T has said that they built more fiber um, uh, after the year after the rule went in place than they did uh, the year the rule did go in place. Um, I mean, I think we can go down the, the, the list, uh, uh, I think, but essentially every one of those carriers that were regulated have said, that they're investing and continuing to invest 
roughly about 15% of revenue. Um, and, uh, and that hasn't changed as a result of the open internet rules. And, and some people say that, you know, that the policy put forth by the SEC is actually just the wrong way to go about it, that the SEC should have lobbied for legislation that would have just made this much clear about the agency's role. Is that not the case? Like, should this have been legislation and not policy set by an agency? Well, you know, the, the, the challenge here is that when you're dealing with a Republican Congress, the legislation that you're going to get, I presume, is going to be very similar to the regulation that the Trump FCC is going to put in place. Um, and, um, and that's to walk away from any responsibility. You know, here's the amazing thing. And, and, and DeRay, it's an important thing for your, for your listeners to understand what the Trump FCC is talking about doing is not just repealing the open internet rule, which is the law of the land that has been the law of the land for the last two and a half years, but they're talking about completely walking away from anything to do with internet service providers and saying, oh, the Federal Trade Commission can take care of that, even though the FTC has, you know, no engineering or network expertise um, and has no rulemaking um, authority. So, so, So think about this for a second. Since 1934 and the passage of the 1934 Communications Act, which was then updated in 1996, since 1934, the FCC has been responsible for making sure that America's networks worked in the public interest. And now for the first time, the FCC is saying, no, we're going to walk away from that responsibility. And it's just mind boggling. So, you know, so, so let's just, let's just say I, um, uh, I'm a consumer and I've got a complaint, um, about my service. I can't take it to the FCC. They said, we're going to ignore it. We don't care. That's not our, that's not our business. That's actually in the net neutrality repeal. Yeah. So they say that we want transparency. One of the things they're saying is we want to make sure that the networks provide information as to what they're doing. But they have no enforcement then of that. So all, you know, a network, all a network has to do is to say, you know, I'm about to go do something that's very bad that consumers aren't going to like, and I'm a monopoly, so they haven't got any choice, um, but I'm going to do it. Um, and they can't even complain to the FCC because the FCC has said that they'll take no action. There's even, that they, they, they haven't even established a place to go to deliver your complaints. I mean, it is breathtaking. Why would they do that? Why would they, you know, because I was told that that there was this transparency clause that was going to be revolutionary and, and the first of its kind. But why would that be coupled with stripping your own enforcement power? Well, let's go back. The transparency is not revolutionary. It was in the 2010 rule. It was the only thing that the court let stand. It was in the 2010 rule. It was the 2015 rule that um, that we passed that said that you have to um, 
to tell your consumer uh, what's going on. But in both those rules, it also said, and we have the ability to, as the agency to follow up with it. Now what the Trump FCC is saying is, oh, yeah, you got to tell folks um, that we won't do anything about it. If you got a complaint, go see if you can get in line at the FTC. And by the way, the FTC has to deal with, you know, every other uh, issue, uh, whether it be uh, bleach labeling or uh, pharmaceuticals or advertising or whatever. And um and so th- this has been a plan. Well, what's happened here is that, you know, while I was waiting for Senate confirmation, there was a um, article that ran in the Washington Post in September of 2013 that, that said, here is how the Internet companies planned to defang their regulator. And it laid out how the companies, by name, AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, um, had, were hiring uh, various spokespersons and, uh, and, and launching a campaign to remove any jurisdiction from, for, the, for the Internet activities from the FCC and give it to the FTC. Well, they have wildly succeeded now thanks to the Trump FCC. And um, I think this is a classic example of regulatory capture. Um, you know, I thought that our job, you know, I came out of the industry and, 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 and people had concerns that my goodness, I'm going to, I was going to get in there and just do whatever the industry wanted. But I said, no, my, my constituency are the consumers of the United States and we should be doing things that benefit consumers and watching out to make sure that these monopoly service providers are behaving appropriately. Well, the monopoly service providers now are getting everything they started asking for four years ago from the Trump FCC. So if this vote goes through, what, what, like what actually happens? Like, you know, I don't think that everybody's Internet's going to get cut off on, you know, Friday or something. So we should fight to make sure this doesn't pass. If it passes, then, then what should we be looking for? Like, what should we be looking for? What's next? Yeah, it's a good question. Ray. The, the, um, so it's going to pass. I mean, as I said, one of the great things about being chairman of the FCC is you 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 seldom bring things before the full commission for a vote that you don't already have the votes for. So it will pass. Then what will happen is it has to be sent over to the federal register and published, which is a, something that takes several weeks, maybe a month uh, to get done. And, and when it is published, um, then that creates a trigger for folks to appeal that decision to the court. And I'm confident that there will be an appeal. And, um, and I find it hard to imagine a court which has twice upheld our open Internet rule, twice, um, is suddenly going to be swayed by the fact that things have changed so greatly in a couple of years that not only does the FCC have the basis to reverse that decision, but also 
to do something totally unprecedented by the agency, and that is to walk away from the kind of mandate that existed since 1934. So I think the name of the game is going to be the courts um, and um, and uh, the other thing that I think is important for everybody to, to bear in mind is that they need to be um, making sure that their elected representatives, their senators and congressmen, understand their position on this. Because, uh, as you mentioned before, at some point in time, uh, this could become a legislative issue and um and uh you need to make sure that congressmen and senators understand that you're pro an open internet one of the other things that we talked about when we met with um we just met with ajit over over the fcc we talked about um like internet access in low-income communities and i'd just been at comcast and heard them talk about the internet essential internet essentials program right is there a way that we can incentivize like lower cost internet service to, to people in communities or like, what is there an answer there? Is there a fix? Is there like a policy solution or is there like a greater fix at scale that we can think about that, that I just don't know about? Yes. And, and um, you know, there's roughly 10% of America that today doesn't have access to the internet if they wanted it. Um, and um, there's, there, there's that group. And then there are people who uh, may have access to it, but can't afford access to it. And so one of the things that we did um, uh, during our tenure was to evolve what had been a program to subsidize phone service so you could call 911 into a program to subsidize high-speed broadband internet access service for low-income Americans. And unfortunately, um, uh, the current chairman, when he was commissioner, fought against it. And when he came in, when the Trump FCC came in, um, they immediately started uh, cutting back on that um, in some very sophisticated ways that don't look like uh, like frontal attacks, but are flanking movements that limit who can provide the service, that make it difficult to provide this kind of service, and that are going to end up, and I believe probably have already had the effect, of limiting the number of people who can avail themselves of the appropriate level of support uh, so that they can access the internet, you know, to do homework, to go online and find a job. I mean, you can hardly live your life without having access uh, to the internet. And, um, and it's, 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 you know, um, tragic to watch how efforts to, to, to um, overcome that gap um, are being thwarted all the while that the commission uh, and its chairman is saying that they want to do something to close the digital divide. Well, I appreciate you joining us in Empathy of the People. I hope to have you back so we can talk about this uh, again as this continues. I learned so much, and I feel like this is one of those issues that people just don't understand, so they don't they don't engage with, but but now they can. Where can people go to, to follow you or to, to stay, stay abreast of your, your thoughts on this? 
So um, I'm currently um, at the Brookings Institution, and you can go to Brookings, B-R-O-O-K-I-N-G-S dot E-D-U, and type in Tom Wheeler, and you'll see a bunch of the stuff that I've been writing. Perfect. Well, thanks, Tom, and we'll, uh, we'll have you back soon. Thanks, DeRay. Take care. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So, you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah. It's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. And here's my conversation with Sinead Burke, disability rights activist. Sinead, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, it's a thrill to be here. Sinead, I'm excited to talk to you today because I realize that I don't know enough about disability rights and disability activism. I want to learn and I appreciate you being willing to be on the podcast. And And I'd love to start with your story and and how you became an activist and also about the term little person. It feels like that's not the right term, but I've been told that it is the right term. So uh, can, you, can you help me understand more? Absolutely. My name is Sinead Burke and I am a little person. I'm three foot five inches tall or 105 and a half centimeters. And when you're talking about me, it's really important that you remember that half centimeter. I joke. But as regards to my work, my background is in education. I'm an elementary teacher by trade. And within my family makeup, I am the eldest of five children. I have three sisters and one brother, and they are all like average height, similar to most people listening to this podcast. And as regards to my parents, my father is a little person like me, and my mother is average height. When they were having children, there was a 50-50 chance genetically that they would have either a child who was a little person or a child who was average height. So within that ratio, I was the only one who had the genetic mutation and the disability. But 80% of little people are born to two average height parents, which means that anybody who's listening to this could have a child who's a little person, could have a friend who's a little person, or a relative. And language for me is something that I think is extraordinarily important. I think languages can be a tool for empowerment or it can be a tool for oppression. For me, little person is the terminology that I'm most comfortable with, but it's a very personal decision. And the reason why I feel proud defining myself as that is because it emphasizes the personhood. However, friends of mine in Ireland, in the United Kingdom, in the United States, they're more comfortable with the terminology of dwarf and they would define themselves as such. Across the entire little people and community of dwarfism, the terminology that is most detested is the word midget. We consider it a slur. A lot of people think it comes from the name of the fruit fly. The fruit fly is a midgie. And actually where the terminology originated from was because of a man named P.T. Barnum, who organized circuses and freak shows. And it was a time where society didn't see little people through the lens in which we do so now. And he used the term midget more or less as a marketing term to encourage average height people to come and see the spectacle. But society has changed. And yet, in many ways, our language has not. 
And I think that's a fundamental problem within our current society. And I wish that we could remove the word midget from everybody's vernacular. It's not necessary and is used to oppress rather than to empower. That was really helpful, Sinead. And I know that you talked recently about the intersection between fashion and disability rights. And I had never thought about that. And one thing in particular that stuck with me was uh, the impact of the rise of luxury kids wear and how that has changed uh, the disability community in some ways. Can, Can you help me understand that better? Help us all understand that better? Absolutely. I have been obsessed with the fashion industry since my teenage years. And primarily that appetite was born out of a frustration. So think to yourself walking into a retail space and you want to buy something. You go up to the rail, you check the size, you take it, you go to the changing rooms, you put it on, it fits, you buy it. That's not my experience. My experience is I walk in, I see something on a rail, I can't reach it. I have to ask somebody for help to give me the right size. They pass it down. I then go to the changing room. If the changing room is a door and has a lock on it, the lock is probably above my head. If it's a curtain, I'm probably not strong enough to pull it across fully. And that leaves a gap and leaves me exposed to the entire population of the shop. And then I decide, okay, I'll buy this. And then I go to the till. But unfortunately, the counter is usually too high and the cashier, due to being very busy, is frustrated and is shouting, next, please, next, please. And for me, fashion is important because it gives individuals autonomy and agency. And yes, there are problems, particularly of an ethical nature within the system and the organization of the industry. But for me, when I wear clothes in which I feel good and powerful and confident, it allows me to express an element of my personality that my genetics doesn't. Because for the first time, when you look at me, you don't just see that I'm a little person and make assumptions based on social conditioning, you look at me and you think, God, she's wearing a suit head to toe from Burberry. She looks like she's dressed for battle. Wow, I want to know this person. And fashion gives me power. But yet that is in harmony or in contrast with my inability to find clothes that represent that autonomy and agency and interest. And with the rise of famous children has brought about this wave of beautiful, wonderful children's wear. But at the same time, I'm conflicted because how do I feel like a professional PhD academic candidate in clothes and footwear that was made for children? Why has the fashion industry for so long been blinkered to such an enormous population that has such a vast economic value? And often when we look at fashion through a disability lens, we look at it through a clinical model and we are all the while consumed by this notion of function and continuously forget that the aesthetic of a garment is as important as to how it works. So we look at using Velcro primarily as the main fixture, or we look at a staple collection where we have one white shirt, one blazer, one pant, and a wrap dress. And whilst that's lovely, it also in a way abdicates the responsibility from the luxury domain who want and should want to access a market that has a global value of 6.9 trillion US dollars, which are disabled people, their family and their friends. So why can we not pair function and aesthetic within an industry that does both in the most idyllic situation? And for me, how they do it is about partnership and collaboration, because they need to pair and collaborate with those of us who have the lived experience within this functional lens. Because for me, 
I know what garments and clothes work for me in a way that the industry does not. And to give you a very brief example, I had the absolute privilege to be dressed by Burberry when I spoke at the Business of Fashion Voices Conference. And the opportunity to be in their fitting rooms, to be flicking through the collection and meandering through the store and getting to decide what I wanted to wear and how their in-house tailors would fit it was extraordinary. And initially we tried on a children's wear trench coat, but it didn't work because I'm an adult and I have a bust. We tried on an older child's trench coat, but that didn't work because it still didn't close and the sleeves were long and the trench was too long. And then we tried on a size six, a small women's wear trench. And it was big in the arms, it was big in the shoulders, it was big in the length, but it fit and it closed. So what did we do? We pulled it apart and we put it back together again. But one of the key pieces in that trench coat was that part of my condition of achondroplasia is that I have a curvature in my spine. It enhances my derriere and my hip area. And sometimes what that means as regards to clothes is that it gathers around my waist and makes everything shorter at the back than at the front. So the way in which Burberry and myself together tailored it and made it fit was that we made the back end of the trench coat an inch and a half longer than the front. So when it sits on a hanger, it looks strange. But when it sits on me, the circumference is perfect. And that's not something that an established fashion house would immediately understand or predict because they don't work with these bodies. But it's something I know because I live this every day. And when you pair the two, I have never felt more myself than when I was dressed in beautiful clothes with such consideration. And most importantly, that fit and made me feel me. I just wanted to ask about are there any myths with regard to the community of little people that you wanted to address or that you think we need to have a better understanding of? I think about what it means to be an ally is having information and knowing as much as possible so that you can actually stand in solidarity with people. So I'd love to know if there are any things that we need to be mindful of, that we all need to be mindful of, that, I, that we just don't know. I wish that everybody listening to this could be converted to be an ally. And as regards to the little people community globally, we have two particular challenges. One is the physical environment. I live in a world that was built for you. And a lot of my problems and challenges stem from that construction. And often it is very difficult to live a life where you are continuously relying on the kindness and asking for the assistance from strangers. Now, don't get me wrong. I am organized, creative and articulate as an individual, not because I want to be, but because my disability has meant that for my survival, I have had to be. Since the age of eight years old, I've had to get very comfortable with putting myself in a vulnerable position, approaching strangers in public bathrooms and asking them for assistance with the lock on the door. But what I would love for people listening to this podcast is to put themselves in a vulnerable position, to invite little people and to ask if they need assistance. What I would recommend is that you do not do that action for them. And you do not do it in a patronizing tone, as I imagine many wouldn't, but think about empathy. And the idea that someone would come to me and say, do you need help, rather than me having to ask for it, is extraordinary. And I would also ask that those particularly working or in an opportunity to employ little people, whether that be in film or television or in any industry, broaden your horizons. We have amazing people like Peter Dinklage and Warwick Davis who are doing extraordinary things for the reputation of our community globally. 
But where are the women? Where are the people of color? Where are the gay men or women or people who place themselves anywhere else on the spectrum of gender? Where are the trans little people? That representation is not happening on our screens. And those messages and those themes should be multifaceted. And unfortunately, they're not happening. So what I want allies to do is to open their eyes, to support these advocates on social media and also with whatever finance that you can do so, but continuously educate, listen, amplify their voices and be willing to put yourself in a vulnerable position so that somebody else can be bettered and profit from that and just survive. Now, I know that you're in a PhD program and I wanted to learn more about that and wanted to also understand what your goal is, what you hope to get out of it and what you plan to do with it. I'm very fortunate. My degree is in education. I'm an elementary school teacher. And one of the things that I have learned from being a disabled teacher is about the respect and admiration that children have and how understanding they are to difference. To give you a very brief example, on my first day in Ireland of teaching junior infants who are kindergartens, they're age four and five, I was at the top of the room and one little girl put up her hand and she said, why are you so small? And I said, why are you so big? And she said, I don't know. I was just born like this. And I said, so was I. She said, great, what page are we on? And what I've understood from children is that when we offer and give them a voice and a platform, and when we engage them meaningfully and hear what they have to say, not only can they shape what occurs in the classroom, but in the whole world. The PhD that I'm undertaking at the moment is on the voice of the child. It's on the UN Convention on the Rights of Children and Article 12, which states that children have a right to have a say about matters which affect them. And I'm using visual and artistic methodologies to try to bring the children's voice to the front of curriculum development and education. What do I want to do with this? I'm not sure. When I started my PhD, I was fully convinced that I wanted to live and remain in academia forevermore and be a professor. I'm coming not too close to the end. I'm, I'm not sure. I've been fortunate to give a TED Talk in New York to speak at the Business of Fashion. And who knows, because the theme that is part of all of the work that I do is voice. And what I love to do, I ask two questions. I take a step back and saying, whose voice is not being heard here? And then I say, how can we bring them to the table and amplify their lived experience and expertise to bring about change? And if I can do that post-PhD, for me, I'll be proud and hopefully successful. Now, in this moment, there are a lot of people, especially because of what's happening in the political climate, they feel like they don't have hope. They feel like they've done everything that they are supposed to do and the world isn't getting better. They've protested, they've gone to marches, they've called, they've picketed, and it hasn't changed. What do you say to the people that are losing hope in moments like this? I think we need to adapt our metrics. I think in previous political climates, we measure change by greater distances because perhaps our battles were easier fought. Perhaps our allies were more visible. And in this current moment, they're not. And two very strong things have helped me. Number one, and it sounds trite, but it's to find your tribe. I have a personal board of directors that I have appointed, and they are four people that constitute my moral, personal, and professional compass. And whenever I'm feeling weary or whenever I'm feeling downtrodden or when I'm feeling at my most inspired and successful, they are the people I rely on to motivate me, to fuel me, to challenge my ego, which is necessary at times. 
And I would recommend that bringing those group of people together in a very tangible way is what continues to spur me on. What I would also do is sometimes it's good to take a break from the news and the difficulties that are ongoing. And I understand that that may not be possible for everybody. But what I would also recommend is trying to find that inspiration elsewhere. For me, it's reading a book, listening to a podcast, finding somebody else's story who is doing something inspiring in a different place, through a different lens, and allowing that to motivate me and fuel me inside to keep going. These are very difficult times, particularly for the most vulnerable. And what I would ask is if you are in the majority of the population in the world, use your privilege, your power, your wallet, and your space and time for good and to bring those who are finding it more difficult in the current climate to make them feel safe, supported, confident, and to be themselves. And when somebody on Twitter or on the internet asks you to ring your senator or your local politician because tax is being reformed or the health bill is going to impact the Americans with Disability Act or in Ireland, we really need to ratify the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities because we are the last country in Europe to do so. Please, please be an ally and take that time out of your day and that money out of your wallet and do something for good. And is there a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? I've been fortunate to have the most amazing family. I have three sisters, one brother, and two parents who are extraordinary. They keep me grounded and they support me. And when I was growing up and said that I wanted to be an elementary school teacher, there was no disability access to college, to third level education at the time here in Ireland. And my parents reminded me that just because I was disabled, it didn't mean that I couldn't pursue my dreams and ambitions. Yes, sometimes I would have to find alternative methodologies to go about them. But to constantly believe in myself rather than belittling myself. And one thing that I think we're all challenged by is the inner monologue and the narrative which constantly tells us we're not good enough. We can't do this. Don't apply for this job. This is not for you. And they continuously encouraged me to silence that voice, to believe in myself and the support system around me and to go for it. Because what's the worst that could happen? You don't get the job. They say no. At least you tried. At least you learned something. And I try to live that as much as possible. I'm not always successful. Sometimes the voice gets too loud in my head. But I think we all have to try. And where can people go to learn more about you and to stay up on what you're doing, what your work is, and what's next? If you'd like to learn more about me, there is a talk called Why Design Should Include Everyone, and that's on TED.com. My website is minimelange.com, and that is the same as my social media handles. It's mini like Minnie Mouse, and Melange, the French and English word for mix. However, there are a number of incredible advocates, particularly in the little people community, who I would totally recommend that you follow. They would be Rebecca Copley. I would also recommend you following Nick Lagarde. And then from the wider disabled community, please follow Maria Town. Please follow Claudia Gordon. Please follow Leah Katz-Hernandez. They are doing extraordinary work, particularly in the United States. Amplify their voices. Find new ones. Please recommend them to me because I need to learn more too. 
Sinead, thank you so much for being able to talk today on Pod to the People. I know I learned uh, so much and, and we consider you a friend of the pod. Can't wait to have you back. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for listening to Pod to the People. Make sure you tell a friend. Make sure you rate us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you back next week. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious.